run like the crown depends on it was the essence of last week's message. Run. Christian has to run. And the Christian is running after the crown. That end times, last day, consummated victory of Jesus. I want to take hold of it. And if I'm going to take hold of it, I'm going to have to run after it. And so the, the command in last week's passage in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, verse 24, Paul says, run that you may obtain it. And when you start talking about Christian obedience and telling people to run, the default is going to be that they are going to slip right into a works righteousness mentality because that's what the human heart wants to do. We want to self-justify. We want to self-righteousify ourselves. And that's what we're going to tend to do. So when you start telling Christians that obedience is important and then say things like run, they're going to slip right into works. Unless you front end that command with the gospel. So we talked last week about how important it is when Paul wants to encourage a church that's dealing with serious disobedience issues that he starts everything off by saying, this is what Christ has done for you. I hope that you know that at the end of the day, at the beginning of the day, we start and end with the faithfulness of Jesus. It's what sets the heart free so that when you hear, run, you don't get snagged into self-righteousness. So, last week I talked about five things. Five things you should know about the actions that Paul is calling you to. And the first thing you should know is that we cannot say that Paul is calling us to earn God's acceptance with this running that he's calling for. We cannot say that Paul is saying, run in order to earn God's acceptance. We cannot say, number two, that Paul wants you to take action in order to turn you into somebody new. Don't run in order to become a Christian. The action that Paul is calling for does not turn you into something because Christian action doesn't transform you. Christian action reveals who you really are. This, I remember I, I gave the example of the, the two prostitutes from 1 Kings chapter 3. There are two prostitutes who have children at the same time. They live in the same house. One of them accidentally sleeps on her child and kills it. The other, she wakes up in the middle of the night, finds that she's killed the child, takes the dead child, places it into the bed with the mother of the other child, takes the living child, and holds it in her arms. This true mother of the living child wakes up and says, this dead child is not mine. How are you going to prove who the real mother is if you don't have any witnesses? Well, King Solomon says, take the living child and cut him in half. Give half to each mom. And the real mother says, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Give the living child to the other woman. And the false mother 
says, no, cut him in half. And Solomon says, the first mother is the real mother. Because the real mom is revealed for who she really is by her actions. Action does not turn her into the real mother. Action reveals her to be the real mother. And so it is with Christian obedience. It doesn't turn you into a Christian. Obedience reveals who you really are. That's the third point. We can say that Christian obedience demonstrates who you really are. The fruit that flows out of your life is the evidence that the Holy Spirit is in your life. We call it the fruit of the Spirit. The fourth point, the fourth thing that we can say about Paul's command to run and commandments in general is that God can command us to bear fruit that only God can produce in our lives. That's the strange thing about bearing fruit. We know that God is the one who does it. We know that God gets the glory for it. We know that it's flowing from Him. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And yet, God commands us to bear fruit and warns us of what happens if we don't bear fruit. Number five, we can say that the God-produced fruit in our lives, that Christian obedience, requires us to work hard in the strength that God supplies. In other words, bearing fruit is hard work. The Christian has to be active. So that's why Paul can say things like run. And when he says run, he means have a goal and be self-disciplined. It, it just, it's part of what it means to bear fruit. It's part of what is required in order to bear fruit. So that gives us an overview of the five things that I said last week Paul is calling for when he calls for action. And I have one more thing to say this week. There's one more point that I want to make this week. One more thing we can say about Christian obedience, and it's this. The sixth point. If you don't bear fruit, then you have no root. And therefore, you will not take hold of the prize. If you don't bear fruit, then you have no root, and you will not take hold of the prize. Verse 26 of chapter 9, this is how Paul words it. 27 actually, he says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest... After preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And there's the warning. This is a warning passage. You get into chapter 10 today, it's all warning about being disqualified if you do not bear fruit. Because if you do not bear fruit, it means that you have no root. And if you have no root, you bear no fruit and you will not gain the prize. In other words... Let me say it a little more strongly. The prize is on the line and our obedience is a condition that must be fulfilled in order to lay our hands on the prize. I'm going to say that again and then I'm going to do some serious qualification. Our obedience is a condition that must be fulfilled. 
in order to lay our hand on the prize. Hebrews 12.14 Strive. Strive. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There is a condition to taking hold of the prize. Holiness. Obedience. There is a condition. Okay. Now, qualification. That condition is not meritorious. There is a type of condition that is not a meritorious condition. This is not a earn the right type of condition. This is a demonstrate who you really are type of condition. Let me illustrate. You walk into the bank, and let's say your older brother has left you an inheritance, deposited it straight into your bank account. A million bucks. It's in your bank account, and you walk in and you say, my name is Jeremy Holton, or whoever, fill in the blank. My name is Jeremy Holton. This is my account number. There should be a million dollars in there. I would like to withdraw it because that inheritance is mine. It belongs to me. And the banker says, can I see some ID? And so you pull out your identification card, you put it on the counter, and she picks up the card and says, Jeremy, okay. You are who you say you are. And she gives you the money. There is a condition to laying your hands on the prize, and the condition is you must demonstrate that you really are who you say you are. Now, in that situation, you're not earning anything. You, you did nothing to put the money into the account. You did nothing to merit the ability to withdraw the money. You just demonstrated that you really are who you said you are. There is a condition to withdrawing money from your account at the bank. You've got you to prove that you are who you say you really are. So you show an ID. And in Christianity... The ID card that proves that you are who you say you are is your obedience. Your obedience is the ID card that says you are in fact who you say you are. So in the bank of heaven, in the bank of heaven, you walk up and say, "I am uh, redeemed of the Lord." And I would like to lay my hand on the prize now. And the heavenly banker says, can I see some ID? And you pull out your card. And he reads on the card, this man slash this woman is redeemed of the Lord. And it says, genuine faith in Christ alone increasingly produced imperfect fruit in his life. 
but fruit nonetheless. And they hand the card back to you and say, yep, you really are a Christian just like you said. The ID reads, your life reads, redeemed of the Lord, genuine faith really produced some imperfect fruit. And it proves that you really are who you say that you are. Your obedience indicates your reality. Now, this is the context that leads us up to the first 13 verses of chapter 10. You must demonstrate your true identity as Christians by running after the prize so that you don't prove yourself to be a fake and become disqualified. That's exactly what Paul is saying he has to do for himself. I have to run hard because if I don't, I'll be disqualified. I must demonstrate that what I claim about my identity in Christ, I must demonstrate it by running. And if I don't run, if I have no fruit, it means I have no root, which means I will get no prize. And so in chapter 10, Paul goes to what I think is one of the most fierce warnings I've read in the New Testament. I I guess I haven't studied a lot of warnings, but this is a serious warning directed toward a church congregation. And he's going to press his point home by having the Corinthians consider what happened with Israel when they were delivered from Egypt. Let me give you a little bit of background. Here's what happens. We're we're good so far. Here's what happens when Israel is delivered from Egypt. Um, This is is going from the book of Exodus starting in chapter 12 roughly to chapter 14. This is the beginning of the life of Israel. And they, uh, they escape from Egypt. They are delivered from Egypt. You have the Exodus event. And they are caught by the Red Sea. And there's this pillar, this fiery pillar. Uh, it's a cloud by day, it's fire by night. It, it, it goes in front of Israel or it comes behind Israel. It's this fiery pillar, the presence of God with Israel. They come up to the Red Sea. Israel goes through the Red Sea. The cloud, according to Psalm 105, is covering them. The cloud is covering them. They're going through the sea. They come up on the other side of the sea and the Lord provides for them food. Food called manna. It's this miraculous food that shows up every morning. The bread from heaven. And they eat this food and then they don't have any... I mean, they're in the desert. Where are they going to get food? Where are they going to get water? God miraculously provides both of them. provides the food with the manna. He provides the water from a rock that Moses strikes with his staff and water flows forth from it. And so the Israelites have food and water. And it's it's really those four things that that Paul's going to refer to here. It's Israel going through the sea, being covered by the cloud, gaining food and water on the other side. It's that image that Paul has in mind in the first four verses of chapter 10. Read them with me if you will. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed 
through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. It's a baptism scene. The sea and the cloud is Israel's baptism. And then verse 3, And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Israel had their own form of baptism, and Israel had their own form of a feast. Some sort of feast in which they partook of bread and drink. And what you have here is Israel, in a prefigured form, participating in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Israel took part of of this. They had some type of experience that roughly corresponds to what we Christians experience in baptism and the Lord's Supper. There's a, a partaking, a feasting on Christ even. Paul's willing to call the rock Christ. So he wants to draw this picture of of Israel being baptized and taking the Lord's Supper and feasting on Christ. And in Israel, it was possible, however, to be in the community of faith and identified with God and identified with His people at the external level without having a true heart for God. This was a possibility. And from what we saw last week, That means if you don't have a true heart for God, it's going to start manifesting itself in the way that you actually live your life. You're going to start bearing fruit of the reality that you don't have a true heart for God. And the way it's going to bear fruit is in disobedience, which is precisely what happened to Israel after these events. And Paul gives us four examples of Israel proving that they have no heart for God even though they've been baptized and are partaking of the Lord's Supper. And you see four examples in verses 6 to 10. Let me just read through those, and then we'll look at each one. Now, these things took place, verse 6, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Okay, These are four examples of what's really in the heart of Israel. They desire evil. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's the first example. Example number two, we must not indulge, verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Example number three, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. And example number four, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. So I want to back up. I want to look at each of those examples. And the first one is in in verse 7, and this is the reference to the golden calf event. comes from Exodus uh, chapter 32, verse 6, and Paul actually just quotes from Exodus for us. Verse 7, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is the eating of a meal in the presence of an idol. Sound familiar? Israel is eating a meal 
in the presence of an idol, it's clearly an idolatrous meal. Something similar happens in in Numbers chapter 11. Recall that the Corinthians in chapter 8 and following, this is all still flowing from the same issue. The Corinthians are refusing to pull themselves out of eating at the pagan temples. They say that they have the right to eat at pagan temples. Paul has been saying it is idolatry. Don't do it. They say we have the freedom in Christ to do it. And Paul says, let's go back to another feast in the presence of an idol and look at how God responded to that. So Paul here is very explicitly naming the Corinthians feasting in the idol temple as idolatry. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. And the result is, Exodus 32:28. here's the result. 3,000 of them are killed in one day. Well, we tested this beforehand and it worked. Yes, no. Wait, I'm on six. All right. If you've been with us for the last year, you'll know that this is part of the worship service. Okay. Here's what happens. The sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. The the Levites, the priests, they had to go kill other Israelites. This was the result. That day about 3,000 of the men of the people fell. 3,000 people died as a result of this feast in the presence of the idol. People rose up to play, it says. Probably some sexual overtones there. Uh, In fact, that's the next place that Paul goes in his second example. In verse 8, chapter 10, it, it reads, We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Now, this is a reference to a different event in Israel's history, still out in the wilderness. And uh, they are at a place called Peor. And they start worshiping Baal of Peor. And it's linked with sexual immorality. Numbers 25, here's what it says. The people began to whore. This is ESV, that's not the Jeremy translation. The people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. So these Moabite women... There's some sexual immorality taking place between Israel and the Moabite women. These women invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So you have another feast in the presence of an idol that Paul is drawing us back to. And in this case, there's some sexual immorality in the mix. 
Now, there's, we know that there's a lot of sexual immorality taking place in Corinth. Paul's already addressed it several times. It appears that it may be related to some of this feasting that they're doing in the temples of the idols around Corinth. So the result of this situation is that 23,000 fell in a single day, Paul says. Let's see. Yeah, okay. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Now, what's really interesting about this is that in Numbers, it doesn't say 23,000. It says, nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. So the result of the worship and sexual immorality with Baal of Peor, Numbers says... 24,000 people died. Paul says it was 23,000 who fell in a single day. Now, this is interesting, and I don't want you to be scared. I want you to understand how biblical authors are willing to make changes sometimes because they want to communicate something. Look at this. You remember this first scene in Exodus with the golden calf? 3,000 died. Exodus 32:28 The sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses and that day about 3000 men of the people fell. This is the passage that Paul was just working in in verse 7. So you have 24,000 dying because of sexual immorality and worship of Baal of Peor and you have 3000 dying because of an idolatrous feast in the presence of an idol. 24,000 dying, 3,000 dying in one day. And Paul seems to just pull those two things together as though he wants you to know. When you read 23,000, you go, wait a second, that's, it was 24,000. A lot of times a biblical author will change something like that intentionally and when you see it, your alarm should go off and you should be saying to yourself, what is he doing? Paul is not an idiot. Paul knows his Bible and he has made a change here in all likelihood, in all likelihood intentionally. Sometimes, sometimes it's a change that comes because they're using the Greek manuscripts instead of the Hebrew manuscripts. They don't have the same categories that we have. They don't feel the... This is not a census of the dead. Paul is making a theological point, and the point is this. Israel feasted in the presence of idols, and when they did, tons of people died. Catch it, Corinthians. Catch the point. So, don't be scared when this kind of thing happens. Understand what the author is trying to communicate and don't feel like it has to be a CNN news report because that's not what Paul's trying to do. And it doesn't threaten the doctrine of inerrancy because inerrancy does not require that kind of thing. Learn from it. Learn from Israel. Learn from Israel's failure to turn from idolatry. Example number three in verse nine. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Okay, this is Numbers chapter 21, verse five. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. 
Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. They hate what God has provided for them, much in the same ways that the Corinthians hate what God is prescribing for them. Don't eat in the idol temple. We hate your providence. We hate your prescription. We don't like what you have told us to do. We don't like what you're providing for us. We don't like your ways. We loathe this worthless food. When Israel gets manna the first time, what they, what they, 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 it's, it's this coriander seed type of flaky bread, honey tasting. They've never seen it before. It comes, it, it's like the dew settles at night and then it hardens into a crisp, flaky thing on the ground. And the first things that the, the first thing that the Israelites say is, manhu. What is it? And so then they just shorten the name when they give it a title. They call it Mon. What? That's manna. What is it? What is this? And, and, and manna, which originally is kind of like this curiosity, like, what is this? Actually turns into, what is this? What? This is our food? I hate this food. I eat it every morning, and then I eat it for lunch, and then I eat it for dinner, and then I wake up the next day, and I gather more. What is this? What is this worthless diet that you have prescribed for your people? Just imagine the Corinthians. Why can't we just have normal life? Like everybody else has normal life. Back in Egypt, we had good food. Why would you bring us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Why can't it just be normal? Why can't we just do what everybody else does? Why can't we just eat at the temple like a normal Christian? Why can't we just be normal people in our... What is this? Why? Nobody else has to labor through the mental effort of trying to discern whether or not this action or that action is going to bring glory to God. Nobody else is having to say no to this world and take on the mentality of death to self. Every day I wake up, death to self, death to self. What is this? Nobody else has to live by convictions. Does our craving for pleasures and the normalcy of this world just to live a normal life and just to enjoy the show like everybody else does our craving for that stir our hearts to regard the teaching and the ways of the Lord to be worthless that's what the Corinthians are doing just want to live a normal life like everybody else. And they disdain the ways of the Lord. Because it's hard. You gotta run. You gotta run. 
And the result of Israelites who live with disdain in their heart for the Lord and His ways is this. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Learn from this, Paul says. The fourth example in verse 10. Nor grumble, as some of them did. Or pick up the implied subject and verb here. Uh, We must not grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, we're not really sure which grumbling event Paul's referring to here, but there are lots to choose from with Israel in the wilderness. And one of the most likely ones is Numbers 14, and it reads like this. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is Yahweh bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Holy cow, are you kidding me? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And I love this. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. Grumbling. Just grumbling against the Lord and His leader. They're rejecting Aaron and Moses. They're rejecting God. And what a moment of frustration and heartbreak for these these two guys. And it's probably a lot like what Paul is experiencing with the Corinthians because, of course, he planted this church and they are rejecting him. He's been on the defensive from the very beginning. They're rejecting him and they're rejecting his gospel. Poor plain old gospel preaching, simple living Paul who did not come proclaiming to the Corinthians the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He was just a plain old guy. And he's been on the defensive from the beginning. And specifically, this battle that he's having with them over whether or not they should be eating in the temple of idols. And he says, don't do it. And they keep saying, we have the right. And Paul says, you want to (laughs) die? So that's the warning. The result of this, Paul says in verse 10, they were destroyed by the destroyer. Here's how Numbers 14 ends. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, What you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, 
the son of Nun. Two guys. From the ages 20 and upward, two made it to the promised land. That's that's scary stuff. And it's all here to serve as a warning because there's a correspondence between Israel and us. There's this correspondence between the two. Their story prefigures our story. In fact, Paul wants us to really think of them as our fathers. Verse 1, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. These, these are our people. We have been grafted into Israel's story. We're part of the story now. These are our people. This is our history. And because of that, this story is here for us. Verse 11, these things happen to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. You see, all of history has been heading in a direction and we have come to the end of the ages. The last days are here. We are living in them and we have been since Jesus resurrected from the dead. The last days are here. The end of the ages. These things were written down For us, that story was recorded for us because we, like the Corinthians, need to learn from what happened there. So I said there's a correspondence between the two of us, but there is supposed to be a difference. Paul's not trying to prophesy what's about to happen to the Corinthians. Paul is trying to warn the Corinthians to not repeat what has happened. There should be a difference. We haven't read this verse yet. Verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. The word there, overthrown, just means destroyed, scattered. Dead, the image there is just dead bodies all over the desert. And Paul says, I don't want that to happen. And so he gives them a very real threat, a very real warning in verse 12. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. You think you're standing, take heed lest you fall. Now, who's he talking to? Who, 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 here, here's my question. What is it that gives some of these people a confidence that they are standing? Why do these Corinthians believe that there's no danger for them in this situation? Or, let me just put it another way. Or more precisely, what is it that they think gives them a secure standing that Paul is warning them to beware of? Lest they find that where they are standing is not actually a secure place and they fall. Where is this confidence coming from? Why is it a dangerous confidence? Why is Paul warning them? 
And the answer, I believe, is that they are putting their hope in baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's how the whole thing starts off in verse 1. Verses 1 and 2, Israel had a type of baptism. Verses 3 and 4, Israel had a type of the Lord's Supper. And verse 5, and Israel was slaughtered in the wilderness. The, the fact that you have been baptized, the fact that you take the Lord's Supper, Corinthians, does not secure you. And apparently, they think that it does. Otherwise, why is Paul bringing up baptism and the Lord's Supper out of nowhere? Not only do the Corinthians seem to think that they have the right to worship in the idol temple, I'm sorry, to eat in the idol's temple, which is an act of worship, But they also say that they have freedom to do it because they've been baptized and they're partaking of the Lord's Supper. So what's Paul trying to uproot? Well, apparently it's the belief that religious observance saves the soul. That's how, that's, that's the problem. That's one of the problems that's happening with the Corinthians. We're part of a church. I go to church. Been baptized took my first communion. I'm good. You know a lot of people think that way. This is this is this is an old picture of a very common problem. The Corinthians have to understand that heartless rel- religious ritual is not a magical transaction that gives you eternal fire insurance. They don't excuse you from having to trust and follow Jesus. And that's why Paul gives us four examples of people who are baptized and taking the Lord's Supper and whose lives don't demonstrate that there's anything behind that. And so they have no fruit, which means they really have no root, which means for those Israelites, no price. They all died in the desert, except for two. That's the picture of all those deaths in the desert. That's the picture that Paul's trying to draw. So the Corinthians have to understand that dead religious ritual is not the same thing as running after the prize. If you walk into heaven's bank and you ask for your inheritance... I'm a Christian, and that inheritance is mine. And the banker says, can I see some ID? And you pull out your heartless, dead, religious, ritual participation. The banker picks it up, takes a look at it, takes a look at you and says, this is a fake ID. It's a fake. Where's your real ID? And to your horror, he picks it out of your pocket. He says, says here that you were living in unrestrained idolatry and sexual immorality and grumbling and defiance to God. I'm sorry, sir. No fruit means no root, which means no inheritance. 
That's a very frightening, that's, that's a terrifying scene. You're supposed to be, if you are living in defiant, hard-hearted sin, you're supposed to be scared by that. That's exactly what Paul is trying to do. He wants you to be frightened. He wants to shake you up. He wants you, if your life looks like Israel's life, he wants you to be shaken and he wants you to ask some very hard questions about who you really are right now. I want you to ask those questions now, not then. It's too late then. He wants you to ask the questions now so that we can do something about the problem. You should be leaving this text, if you're in defiant, hard-hearted sin, leaving this text thinking, I don't want that to happen. And Paul says, I don't want it to happen either. So pull out your ID. Take a look at it. What does your life say? Who are you really? What does your ID say? Are you the redeemed of the Lord? As evidenced in the way that you live your life. I'm not asking if it says I've been baptized. I'm not asking if it says I go to NHF. I'm not asking if it says took my first communion, went through confirmation. I'm asking, is it evident that Christ Jesus is your only hope in life and death? Is that evident? In your, is that what your ID says? Does it read, this woman, this man is redeemed of the Lord? Genuine faith in Christ alone increasingly produces imperfect fruit in their life. But fruit, nonetheless. If you're wondering, okay, just pause here. How do I know if there's fruit in my life? You've got to ask that question. Every once, every once in a while, you need to ask that question. And, and there was something that really helped me with this a while back. I heard D.A. Carson so this is probably my favorite quote from D.A. Carson. I think he was quoting somebody else, though. Hmm. He was. I don't remember who. <clears throat> D.A. Carson said, <clears throat> he was receiving a, he was receiving a, 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 a feshrift, a book that was written, a bunch of articles in it that were dedicated to his honor. <clears throat> so um, he took the stage, and this is what he said. He said, I am not who I want to be. And I am not who I should be. And I am most definitely not who I'm going to be. But I am not who I was. That's, I'm not who I was. That's called fruit. Jesus is changing you. I am not who I was. Hey, I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I should be. I'm certainly not what I'm going to be in glory. But I'll tell you what, I'm not what I used to be. My life is different because Jesus is in my life. And that's called an identification card. You with me? You, you following me? Am I mixing too many metaphors here? 
Are you the Lord's? And if not, then I plead with you, be reconciled to God. If you know, hey, I carry a fake ID. I was just exposed. The Holy Spirit is convicting your heart and you're going, I think that I'm a fraud. I'm just pleading with you right now, turn to Christ. He's got promises for frauds who turn to Him. Ditch that ID. Turn it in. Turn yourself in. I want Christ. I just want You, Lord. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I've been a fraud. I want to come under Your reign. I want to come under Your rule. I want to be saved. I want to. If I have to eat manna the rest of my life, I want manna. I want what You want for me. I surrender. I give. I turn. I want You and Your ways. I, I'm done. I am done. Christ has mercy for the person who's done. Are you the Lord's? If not, be reconciled to God. Promises for you who trust in Christ. Great promises for you. And if you are the Lord's, then I have an awesome promise for you. And it's the same promise that Paul gives to those Corinthians who are in serious danger right here. It's the promise that the power of temptation is no match for our God. The power of temptation is no match for God. It's the promise that God is the one who ensures that we fulfill the condition that must be met in order to lay claim on the prize. God is the one who gets the glory for our obedience. God will faithfully help you to live out your identity. God will help you to obey Him. God will help you to obey Him. If you, if, if that, maybe, I want you to catch that. God will help you to obey Him. You can write that down. You should write that down. Because if you don't understand that it comes from God, you'll get all kinds of confused. Last week we talked about how God is the one who is at work behind the scenes, both to cause us to be willing, this is Philippians 2.13, God is the one at work behind the scenes to cause us to be willing to do what He wants us to do, and He energizes us to do the work. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for His good pleasure. So that's what we talked about last week. God is behind your motivational experience to move toward obedience. But not only is He the one who is at work in you both to will and to work, God also is the one who ensures that Christians do not encounter temptations that have the power to overthrow you. 1 Corinthians 10.13 This is how Paul ends the paragraph. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. You should underline it. You should circle it. God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, Let me just focus in on the endurance part and then I'll head to the promises. The Christian life is going to be hard. 
You know that. You should know that. If you don't realize that or have a pipe dream about Christianity being about your best life now, let me just correct it. The Christian life is going to be hard. You're going to have to endure some temptation. You're going to have to endure some testing. It's not a strange idea for those who are familiar with Jesus who died in the process of obedience. We're called, as one author said, to a long obedience in the same direction. That's just what, that's just what it is. And, and it's what we call the perseverance of the saints. I don't, I don't use the phrase, once saved, always saved. Because it doesn't accurately capture the way that the Bible talks about those who are His. The way that the Bible talks about it is those who are His, He causes them to persevere in obedience in a long... How did it go? Obedience in the same direction. Perseverance. God strengthens you to persevere. He does things with temptations that enable you to be able to persevere. God strengthens us to run. And part of what He does in order to cause us to be who He's called us to be is that He does not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability. That is a pledge. That is a promise. God does not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. If you don't believe that, memorize this passage and renew your mind. It's a promise. It is a promise. You can bank your life on it. God will not allow you, Christian, to be tempted beyond what you can handle. And promise number two, He will provide a way of escape so that we can endure temptation. He will provide a way of escape. You will not be tempted beyond what you can endure. He will provide a way of escape so that we can endure temptation. So sometimes, escape requires endurance. The escape is going to require you to endure. You're going to have to run. You're going to have to run. And God will strengthen you to persevere. And He'll help you deal with the temptations as well. God is faithful, folks. That's, that's where we end. God is faithful. It's a great hope that He gives to us in a passage that calls us to run after the prize. And I invite the worship team up and we thank You for Jesus who has saved us from our hopeless situation. We had no hope. We had no future. We had no power. We had no strength. We had no promises. Everything has failed us in this world and in ourselves. But because of what you have given to us in Christ, because of what you have purchased at Calvary, because of the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is a down payment on the inheritance that guarantees that you will persevere us, because of your great work at Calvary, which has secured all of these things, we can take hold of these promises and put our hope in your faithfulness. And so now, 
Lord, we take a moment to pause and to remember the greatness of what has been accomplished for us on the cross. And the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And may God plant that zeal in our hearts because only he can quicken the heart to love it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.